This is Dan Fagella of Emerge AI Research, listening to the AI in Business podcast. We've talked about a lot of types of data over the years on the show. We've talked about using payments data in banking or maybe computer vision data from satellites or from autonomous vehicles or IoT data in manufacturing. But what about the location data of individuals? We're all carrying this ultimate sensor in our pocket. How is it that retailers or other companies might be able to predict people's behavior, maybe do better marketing campaigns, understand how to better plan for capacity in terms of their staffing needs, etc.? How might that data be used? Well, as it turns out, there's one company that does that awful well, and that's Foursquare. You may remember them from back in their social media-ish days, back in the earlier kind of 2011-ish, 12-ish time horizon. Uh, we speak this week with Max Sklar, who spent uh, nearly eight years there as a machine learning engineer at Foursquare after being an adjunct instructor at New York University after getting his master's degree there. He is now an engineering and innovations labs advisor at Foursquare. And he speaks to us about the possibilities and potential of location data. We talk about retail, we talk about predictive, and we talk a little bit about use cases accessible today and also where this data might be able to be handy for businesses in the future. I think that this is frankly the tip of the iceberg. Foursquare is doing some interesting things. They're, they're relatively unique in terms of the way that they're applying machine learning, but I think that this really is going to be, in many regards, the future of how we predict consumer behavior and the future of how marketing works in the brick and mortar slash digital world that we're increasingly enmeshed in. So without further ado, let's hop right into this episode. This is Max Sklar with Foursquare here on the AI and Business Podcast. So, Max, uh, glad to be able to have you on here with us, and I think folks will be familiar with the brand you're with now, Foursquare, from probably back in the day when they might have had the app on their phone and checking into different locations. I, I want to talk to you a little bit about the importance of location data and how different businesses even use that. We'll step out of how data and AI are being used today and just talk about location data, why and how is that valuable in business. Do you have a nice way to sum that up? Yeah, well, first of all, Dan, thanks for having me on the show. Course, yeah. I've been working on location data my entire career, even like as an undergrad, my my uh, my, my final project was a location-based project. This was before Foursquare even existed. So let's back out to the question a little bit. Like, why is location data important to business? Businesses use location data for a whole variety of applications these days, including one of the big ones that we do at Foursquare that I've been involved in is called attribution, which is essentially determining uh, whether ads are working or not in causing people to go to places that they wouldn't otherwise go to, you know, ads for particular stores or um, even tourism ads and things like that. Probably an even bigger one, arguably, is uh, ad targeting, uh, which is, you know, taking a look at the places that people go and then, uh, you know, companies might want to target individuals who I don't know. Let's say, so for example, I moved recently, right? I moved uh, last month. In the previous couple of months, I visited certain places that uh, maybe I wouldn't have visited in the last couple of years. Like maybe I went to Home Depot a little bit more. I went to you know, things like that. And so maybe you might want to target people who go to Home Depot and you might say, okay, this, is, this person is more likely to want my product. And so that's another kind of big business 
use case for location data. And then, of course, there's just the kind of intelligence around it. Like, you know, a lot of companies want to know where people are going. Where is the foot traffic at? Who's up? Who's down? What are the hot neighborhoods? Uh, that sort of thing. So all of that kind of falls under the location of uh, under the uh, under the umbrella of location intelligence. Got it. Yeah, it seems like it's, it's quite open-ended, right? I mean, I, when I imagine, and I'd really love for you to flesh these ideas out, because this is me as someone who's not in the location intelligence space full-time, quite obviously. But, you know, I would imagine, all right, let's say I am McDonald's and I operate a lot of locations. Well, it sure would be nice to have some understanding of, you know, foot traffic on certain streets or roads, because maybe I would know, I would have a better calibrated understanding of what open and closed times I might want for different locations and how many people I should have on staff during what days, what times, seasonality, whatever, if I had a predictive model or, or some kind of previous report on what that foot traffic looked like. It seems like maybe that's one side of the coin is, is brick and mortar. What do I need for resources, boots on the ground? The other side is who was where and can I get access to who those identities were in some way, shape or form? so that I can then maybe promote something to them. You know, I, I sell some home improvement stuff. I want to target people at Home Depot. I sell some food-related item. Maybe I target people that are on this very fancy road in, New, in street in New York City that has all the fancy-dancy restaurants, whatever the case may be. Is this somewhat accurate here, or are there entire realms of location data that maybe I'm, I'm sort of leaving out with those two little brief examples? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. There's a whole field of study now. Data science was a big buzzword several years ago, still a big buzzword, but yep. there's a whole field of study now called urban data science, which is just how people move around the city, you know, where people go, what the pulse of the city is, what the networks are like, where to locate stores. And all those problems are, I mean, I, I did an episode on the Local Maximum podcast with uh, my friend uh, Toss Newless about urban data science and how, you know, they kind of figure out which places are going to be hot and which places are going to have the most foot traffic that you want. So yeah, this is something that, that people are very interested in. So how did businesses do this back in the day, Max? Let's say we're rolling back time and it's 2005 and I'm McDonald's. What am I doing to figure out open times, closed times, number of humans and number of stores? Uh, or, you know, I, I'm whatever other brick and mortar business that needs to have some understanding of these things. Where would I grab that information? You know, wh wh what would I be looking at? So I, I, I don't know if I could speculate on, you know, what McDonald's would do because I wasn't in their position, but you still have a lot of data even, even before, you know, the smartphone, you certainly have your sales data. So right there yeah, is yeah. kind of a baseline of what's going on in all your stores. It might not be, it might not have been as easily queryable. It might have existed in kind of a, in, in, in a spreadsheet, but in terms of, kind of the hyper-local information, like, is this particular street going to attract more attention than this other particular street? You really just have to rely on kind of visiting those places and sort of intuition. Yeah, without the like hyper-local information, you, you're kind of flying blind. Yeah. So somebody would have to, I mean, I can, I can imagine whatever, if I'm some big enough chain of stores, I'd have to maybe have folks sit on a corner and observe, you know, sit on a representative corner that we think is, you know, uh, it would, would be indicative of the amount of, you know, let's say traffic in terms of vehicles that 
an entire sort of maybe neighborhood would have or something like that. And yeah. I don't know, manually count or something like that. I'm imagining the 80s or the 90s or something like what I that mean, looked yeah, like. I've heard stories of, of that happening. And not only that, like I've heard stories of people trying to count, you know, how many people are going into different stores during the day in order to like you know, trade publicly available stock, which sounds crazy to me. And it's a lot more efficient just to have that data at your fingertips. Yeah, as opposed to sit there and, and have people standing outside of different stores with a clicker in their hand, you know, tapping it every time a new a new pair of right. shoes walks through the front door. So location data, tough ball game. A lot of anecdotes, lots of individual snippets of data, really no you know, high level take on that kind of thing, or probably very few high level takes, you know, maybe if there's some event and we can spend money and buy the event attendee list and figure out how many people and then run that against Experian or something and figure out, you know, the, the wealth or, you know, different factors and demographic elements of, of who these, these human beings are, maybe things like that had to, had to go down. But now there's a, a massive new set of streams of, of data around informing these location decisions, whether we're figuring out, hey, did that advertisement work? Or we're figuring out, do I want to open a store here or here? Or we're figuring out, you know, how many people do I want, you know, on staff on, on Thursday if it's going to be rainy or something like that. What are some of those new sources of data? If you talk about what makes location intelligence work, what allows business to make smarter decisions today, talk to me a little bit about what that looks like. Well, for Foursquare, it comes in the form of a kind of giant panel of users that are in the sort of Foursquare ecosystem of apps. Uh, now, sometimes you might think of, okay, well, there's the Foursquare app, there's the city guide, where the Foursquare is now two apps, is a city guide app, and the Swarm app. So we, we certainly get data from that. Um, but there's a whole host of other apps that are on your phone that use Foursquare's underlying technology that use the SDK. And so that kind of files into a panel of users. You know, it's not necessarily, you know, it's not necessarily one-to-one -one like we know who these people are. It's, it's anonymized in, in many cases, but essentially, and, and there are a lot of rules as to like which apps they can go in. There has to be some really good consumer purpose for having kind of location and stop detection in these apps. So one of the things that Foursquare does is like, you know, stop detection, we detect your stop at the store and we could tell what store it is. So it's not just a series of latitudes and longitudes, which might be interesting, but might not be too helpful. I mean, that might just be, you know, you can get the zip code and, and, and whatnot, but you don't actually know what the, what the person is doing. And so that kind of feeds into uh, what we call a panel of, of users of which there's a lot, I don't know the numbers right now, but uh, millions, maybe tens of millions, and that can then be queried in certain ways to get information, answer questions, produce reports, whatever we need to do. Yeah, and and so it's it's almost you know the the analogy that would be used here, uh, whether you like it or not, would be the Nielsen analogy. Yeah, where we're oh, trying, yeah, we're, we're trying to come up with a representative set. So for those of you who are listening in, you know Nielsen is among the sort of biggest businesses in in sort of consumer preferences around media, that they are kind of the player in that game. Probably started, well, potentially started before television, but certainly they popped off in the era of television where certain number of families would get a Nielsen box and then, you know, Nielsen would know what 
TV stations they were watching at what times, and they try to get different kinds of you know neighborhoods and different types of families and you know different sort of representative groups of folks, and then say, well, it sure seems like older couples are watching more of this, or younger folks are tuning in more to that, or whatever. For you folks, is there a similar sort of ball game where you're trying to find different clusters of representative people? Like, hey, by golly, we don't have enough. Uh, I don't know, <laughs> you know, uh, Hispanic folks under thirty or something. You know, we we need a group for you know. Are, are you essentially building these cohorts yeah. based? on what your enterprise customers want, sort of who their target audiences are? Because I imagine you don't want to collect oodles of data from a group that nobody's really paying attention to and selling to. Right, right. So sometimes we don't have a choice as to you know which people go in the panel. We could certainly filter people out if, if we don't care about them. And there's certainly a lot of spam filtering going on. But demographics is, is key to a lot of this. Like, you know, uh, I said, you know, we use the panel to ask questions and produce reports. And you can imagine that a lot of those questions and a lot of those reports have to do with what the demographics of the people are. And so some of the key ones obviously are age, gender, and a zip code of home and work, which is really kind of a proxy for income, I think. Advertisers want to know that, of course. And so there's been a number of interesting problems that we've tackled around trying to get the demographic data. I've personally have worked on some machine learning algorithms that take data from a certain section of our panel where we know the gender of the people, for example, or we know the age of the people, for example, and then trying to use that to infer what the age and gender of other people might be based on, you know, based on the description of where they go, uh, which is interesting, although it's uh, and, it, and it really helps answer questions uh, a lot better. But it's it's kind of fascinating that it's not it's all done statistically. Like we don't know if any given person is a man or a woman. We just sort of we just make some inferences and uh, try to figure it out based upon the the people who for which we have that information. Yeah, yeah. So and it, it's it's a challenging problem in many respects. But when when you do have this data. Is it really going to be quite bespoke use cases depending on the client, or are there certain sort of rote ways where we know we can we can run we can extract value? In other words, I'm imagining you know some some company like some shoe store chain, you know, giant shoe store chain, you know, using you folks to to potentially figure out who's buying what or who's going to be where or what have you. Sure. Are they are they kind of building out some sort of custom tailored, hey, this kind of demographic one or these kind of things, we're running ads to these kinds of people. We want to see how these kinds of people respond. And and sort of there's going to be a setup of looking at your data, seeing if you need to fill out some new cohorts of people to track or if you already have them on deck, figuring out what kind of dashboards, what kind of outputs you want to do, and then putting that stuff together, building that stuff together, and then having something to, to look at and observe. Or there's some really copy and paste use cases like, hi, we're running this kind of ad here. We want to understand the impact on the demographic within these parameters, and you guys go ahead and pull it up, and then and then that's sort of something you can you can sort of spin from scratch. I'm I'm kind of wondering about the tailoredness of each corporate engagement. Yeah, well, there's a little bit of both, and I, that's kind of one of the hard things about working on these problems, where a lot of times kind of custom work comes in, and it sort of gets you kind of knocked off your roadmap when really you should be working on things that. Uh, 
every client might need. So, yeah. I mean, just to give an example, like there, there are a few things, and I'm sure like a lot of people are recognizing that problem, <laughs> particularly people who work on enterprise software, right? Where it's yes. like, oh, this one client wants this thing. And then the sales comes to you and says, drop everything and do this. And then afterwards they're like, oh, that client, they, they don't want it anymore. And then you just spend a month building something that, that nobody, nobody wants. cares about. Um, yeah. Yeah. So to answer your question, it's like a little bit of both. Obviously, there's a lot of standard reports that Foursquare does where kind of the, the, the demographic information that we've been working on for years and years is kind of baked into the report. Uh, I have to say in attribution, a lot of this information is critical to get the thing working because we don't know, you know, our panel doesn't necessarily match the population at large. It's not a it's not a random sample of the population. If it was a random sample of the population, it would be a lot easier to make inferences off it. But it's not. That's why we need to build kind of causal and, and, and machine learning models. So I mean to give a simple example, let's suppose you know the population is like 50-50 male female, but your panel is 60-40 male female. Well, you know that you're kind of oversampling men by a certain factor and you have to correct for that. And, you know, it gets very complicated though, when you're talking about different age distributions and different places of origin and, and all of that stuff. So yeah, it's definitely something that uh, is, is required to get a lot of this technology working. I mean, even just to like estimate how many people are visiting a place, you also have to correct for the sort of bias in your in your panel, in your data. Yeah, yeah. So it, there, there's, you know, attribution really, really hard. Just these things you're talking about here. Well, you know, we've got to have a somewhat representative set of people. And if we don't, we've got to control for that. And well, figuring out what signals mean they've actually been somewhere, eh, there's going to be some wiggle in there. and We've got to control for that. It's so sure. tough to get to attribution, you know, to figure out, hey, did this advertisement move people? Or were there actually this many people in this you know, uh, neighborhood yeah. shopping at stores or not to get to those ground truths is, is so hard. Yeah, go ahead. I can tell you some crazy stories about that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. Let us know. I mean, I really want to figure out what makes this so hard. I, I have some guesses, but if you've got anecdotes, I mean, that's going to be super valuable. Yeah. So, so here's an anecdote. There was one report that was a certain company and they found that, um, you know, we, we ran it through our attribution system and we found that after seeing the ad, people's you know uh, visits to these locations dropped precipitously, you know. So it was like, how we can't believe that this ad is actually causing people to not visit the store. And it wasn't just a little; it was like eighty percent, eighty percent drop in in visits. And it was like, why is this? And that was a, a lot of the problem. Where there's kind of a separation where we didn't really know what the ad was. It turned out to be a haircut place and they were giving coupons to people who just got a haircut and it was only measuring for three weeks. So <laughs> it made sense that the people who just got coupons, they had, they, they had a haircut. They weren't coming back at all. Uh, it doesn't mean the coupons weren't working, but it was like, wow, this was really off. Uh, another problem was like, you know, some of these tourism ones where, you know, let's take McDonald's as an example. That's not tourism. You might think that you're, probability of visiting a McDonald's might be related to how many McDonald's are in your town or whether you're in a town where a lot of people go to McDonald's or, you know, whether or what the density of McDonald's is and so on and so forth. So we take their current location into account, but 
The problem is with some of these tourism ads, the ad already caused you to visit a new location. And so it kind of breaks the chain of causality, causing the model to spit out kind of nonsense results. So even after we've been we've been working on it for and iterating on it for quite a long time, you still see some of these edge cases where you weren't thinking about it when you first built the model pop up and, uh, and kind of break things in certain circumstances. Yeah. I mean, I imagine there's lessons you learn from that. Like, oh, whoa, when we work yeah. in the travel industry, we always have to be really careful about X. Or, ooh, when we're doing coupons, we always need to ask the client these four things ahead of time to figure out if we're even you know, going to pull up a report about something that's relevant or not. It feels like maybe there would be transferable lessons from how different, different slices of location data for different goals have to be run in order to avoid those errors. Absolutely. I mean, that's one of the things, why, <laughs> that's one of the reasons why it took a lot longer than, you know, I would have thought at the beginning. I'd been like, all right, six months, we could build this and then, and then we're good to go. <laughs> a lot of people, maybe on the business side of things, uh, thought that way. And then it turns out, no, there's, this is a really hard problem that uh, scales somewhat, but as you kind of scale out horizontally, uh, different things come up and it takes kind of a lot of institutional memory in kind of like yeah. company-wide learning to, to get it right. Well, and this sort of pivots us maybe into a topic that we can close on. I, I feel like we're, we're, we're taking this initial interview here, Max, all the way into attribution and whatnot, but I, I think it's it makes sense to to kind of you know dive deeper into this topic because there's there's so many elements that make it hard, but this is not unlike a lot of other AI issues, right? Where we go in saying, well, you know, certainly like you said, maybe the business folks went in saying, well, we could use AI and use predictive models and we can know when X happens. It's like, yep, that sounds awesome. But as it turns out, there's a bajillion reasons why we can't just pump this into this side of the model and say, okay, this is real you know, truth that we can go out and apply to the world. There's, there's so much more hubbub there. It, it feels to me, Max, like one of the reasons attribution is hard, and tell me if I'm on the right page, because I, I, I want to find a lesson that can be transferable to much of the audience, is that we're talking about data in the real world. So I'm always very jealous of businesses like Amazon or Facebook where people are scrolling in a virtual world. And so I know exactly what you saw on your screen. I know exactly what you clicked on. I know how long you were logged in. I know when you were logged in before. I know what profiles you clicked on. I know you know what, what videos you watched and for how long. I know all of that because you're, you're trapped in my virtual ecosystem and when I look at what you've done, I know damn well what it was. You know, Amazon isn't guessing that I bought, you know, Plutarch's Lives, you know, three weeks ago. Amazon knows damn well that I bought it and it knows what else came along in that package, you know, maybe some peanut butter, whatever the heck else I ordered. For you folks, if we're looking at foot traffic for a McDonald's somewhere or we're looking at, you know, some, some advertising results for, you know, a Home Depot somewhere, we have to proxy our data out of a representative sample, hopefully, and we have to hope that those signals from those people are actually indicative of them moving on the ground. So the problem seems to be, what are the most accurate proxy bits that we can use to somewhat reliably model reality? And it feels like the number of iterations you could do to try to solve for that, to try to solve for the hard physical world problem is almost infinite. I mean, it's, it's almost overwhelming. Right. You, you almost want to start as simple as you can and then see what the problems are and iterate from that. That's what I found. Otherwise, you know, 
it, there's a tendency, uh, particularly as an engineer, to get started and you're like, okay, here are all the things that I want to take care of and I'm going to build this really complicated model. And then A, you find out that's not enough. And then B, you find out you built a whole lot of things that may be correct for something that is like 0.1% difference, but don't really matter in the long run. So that would just be my advice in, in that area. This is a really useful deployment sort of idea in general, Max, is, is around you know when you're figuring out how to, I mean, what you're talking about, tell me if I'm wrong, is how do we get signal from noise? You know, and, and I, I don't mean noise in a bad way. I just mean we've got data. Some of what we know is gobbledygook. Some of it is not representative humans. You know, that's it's overrepresenting men or people of this age group or whatever. And we've got to figure out signal. We've got to figure out how well does that correlate to to actual truth. Often without knowing that truth, right, Max? You don't know how many Hispanic women entered that McDonald's. You know, in in those three months, right? You can't compare the model to to base reality, which is really really frustrating. So when you're when you're trying to extract value from, you know, scant data that, that really might have value in it, you're recommending to start simple. Can you maybe give us a, an idea of the thought process you go through? Because I'm imagining somebody listening to the show in the banking space or in the pharmaceutical space, and they've got a big intractable problem. They know there's value in their data, but they want to start to tease out the corners and figure out what could correlate, what could add value. What do you have to think through, Max, um, in order to get that done? The first thing I do to lay out the problem is I use a Bayesian inference framework, which is basically like, you know, it almost always comes down to this, you know, hey, there's some reality out there. I have a question of what that reality is. It could be any of these things. That's my set of hypotheses. You know, in the case of attribution, it's like, you know, what percent lift does this add? In the case of, let's say, foot traffic, it's just my hypothesis is, this many people went there today. And then I say, okay, here's my set of potential truths. And here's my data. This is all evidence of my truths. And, you know, then kind of lay out, you know, the uh, Bayesian inference equation, which I don't know if I want to go into. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Not for this audience, I don't think. But uh, yeah, yeah. But I, I go into it on a local maximum a lot. And basically, I, I sort of start from that framework. It's like, what are my hypotheses about the world? That what are the what's the answer that I want to get among this kind of multiple choice space of answers? And what data do I have that I think can be used to infer which of these truths are are more likely to be true, or which of these possibilities are more likely to be true than others? And so then I kind of pare down. Okay. I have a hypothesis space. Let's try something simple. Maybe it's like it's a single number that I'm looking for. So let's try like a linear regression or a logistic regression and see what that comes out to. And then I compare to what I expect and then kind of work from there. Maybe we need something a little more complicated. Got it. So it sounds to me like part of the short answer is here, Max, get yourself a data scientist in the room with with some ability to do the the technical part of inferring, I would presume also, tell me if I'm wrong, you would prefer to have subject matter experts in the room. Let's say you personally, Max, oh, yeah. aren't really an expert on, you know, what kind of demographics buy, you know, power tools at physical locations, right? I presume actually, I would bet probably the majority of my life savings that you, you, you're absolutely not an expert on that particular topic. Sure. I, I would, I would presume that part of what's going to infer your weighting of different kinds of data, what things are most likely to be true, would be some speaking to, maybe marketing people, maybe boots on the ground folks in that space. Does that, does that play into this initial hypothesis formation? And if so, how? 
Yeah, exactly. So in Bayesian inference, there's something called a prior, which is what your beliefs are in terms of yeah, what the potential okay. states of the world might be before cool. you've seen the data. And you might think that's crazy. Like, why should I have beliefs before I've seen the data? But but you do. Like, if you uh, get a coin from the grocery store and change, you kind of believe that's probably a fair coin. Maybe it's not, but you, you sort of believe it's 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 very, very likely to be. And so... Oftentimes, these kind of initial hunches are very important in answering the problem and kind of uh, filtering out noise and things like that. So, yeah, I would say get a subject matter expert, get a data science, but also everybody should have like a kind of a basic knowledge of probability theory, which, um, you know, you don't have to know, you know, all the advanced like calculus and all the different like probability distributions, but just kind of a basic knowledge of you know, what a joint probability is, what conditional probability is, you know, what a prior is, things like that. Yeah. I don't know if everybody tuned into the show who has an MBA and doesn't write code is going to net how, how deep into stats fundamentals they need to know. I'm sure if I had those folks on, they would say, well, all the data scientists need to have this baseline knowledge as well. But I think maybe what, what we're going to see in the future, Max, and certainly you're leaning in this direction, is more business people who do understand at least some of the fundamentals of the data science world and terminology, and maybe more and more data science folks like yourself, and I'm sure you do, who kind of understand the business domain better and better. And, and maybe as that osmosis happens on both ends, will be better to have will be uh, more able to have better priors better hypotheses and get that signal out of the the noise sooner. Yeah, you absolutely have to have a good working relationship between people on the data side and people on the engineering side and people on the sales side and people on the uh, on the business side. You can't just you can't just kind of throw things over a wall. I mean, I guess you can. A lot of companies try to yeah, do it. It's terrible. It's, uh, <laughs> it's terrible. It's, uh, yeah. Yeah. It doesn't, doesn't work well for projects. Clearly, you guys have a more involved process. So I like that we got to cover the use case, Max, you know, of just understanding location data, how hard it was, what we're, what we're able to do now, and also the challenges. And even squeak a little bit in on the deployment side. Those of you who are listening in, we normally cover deployment challenges and ROI measurement ideas in our Making the Business Case episode on Thursdays. But we got to do a little bit of both in this use case one. So this is a lot of fun. For those of you that are interested in getting a little bit more nerdy and technical, Max has a, a show called the Local Maximum Podcast, his own program. A little bit of a different focus on what you have here, but you already got a taste of them. And so check out his show if you're interested. And Max, I know that's all we had for time, but I appreciate you being able to join us here on the AI and Business Podcast. Thanks so much. Yeah. Thanks for having me on, Dan. Very cool show. So a big thanks to Max for joining us, and thank you to you for listening all the way through to the end of this episode. We appreciate having you here. If you enjoy the show and you want to support us here on the AI and Business Podcast, be sure to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It means the world to us. It helps us get more people to learn about the program. Obviously, great reviews help spread the word, uh, but they also give us great ideas. The reviews from you. It's LinkedIn comments, and it's podcast reviews that often are going to be the best prompts for great content ideas moving forward for us here at Emerge. So your comments really do matter. And if you want to support the show again, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It would mean the world. But that's all for this episode. I look forward to catching you on the next episode here on the AI and Business Podcast.